Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. In June of 2018, FIFA, not the the video game, but the organization, FIFA, uh, they decided that North America would be the host for the 2026 World Cup. And as soon, is that new season? You guys know this? As soon as that happened, all kinds of cities across Mexico, across Canada, across the United States started auditioning to be one of those cities. And I was really hoping Cincinnati or Chicago would be picked, but they weren't. So I think our family's going to be road tripping to Kansas City in a few years. But, um, but here's the thing. Each of these cities were doing everything they possibly could to prepare for the arrival of the World Cup. And in one sense, the World Cup was future, but for Kansas City, it's very much today. The impact of that future arrival is being felt today. And this is exactly how Advent works for the Christian. Advent not only looks back to the arrival of Jesus at his incarnation, but it looks forward to the day when he returns to make all things new. And this changes, this forward look changes the way that we live today every bit as much as our backward look does when we see him coming for the first time. In fact, the term Advent had a very technical meaning in the Roman Empire of old. It described what happens when an emperor decided to visit your city. And when that decision was announced, like the World Cup, this emperor's future visit sent shockwaves into the present day of that city. Here's how one scholar put it. It will not only have an important impact on the people when it happens, talking about the emperor's visit, the emperor's advent, but because of its significance and the eager anticipation, coupled with the massive preparation which is required for the arrival of the one who is coming, it is already having a serious impact before the event. This morning we are going to explore a small passage in one of Paul's letters, the letter to the Philippians. And if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. It's a somewhat familiar passage, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. You can follow along on the screen as well. And in this passage, Paul anchors everything that he says in this letter with a simple statement of fact. It's three words in the Greek. It's four in English. And they are, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. That is Advent in four words, friends. The Lord is near. And Paul expects, as we will see, these words, this reality, to actually change the way that the congregants in Philippi and us today live our lives this very day, this very week, this very season of our life. So let me read the text. I invite you to follow along. We'll pray and see what God has in store for us this morning. This is God's word. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock, our redeemer? By your Holy Spirit, would this time in your word be transformative? Would it change us? Would we see miraculously the beauty of Jesus in your active word this morning? And would that counter change us? Change us more into his image. And we pray this in his name. Uh, whenever I try a new restaurant, I like to ask the server if they have any recommendations for their food. And most of the time, the server has a personal favorite or two or three. But every once in a while, I get a server who makes no personal recommendations at all. And they kind of look at you and they kind of say, you know what? <laughs> uh, you get the sense they've never really eaten from the menu. <laughs> Sometimes they even say as much. And sadly, this dynamic can happen in ministry. I'll give you an insight into my life. As a pastor, I can serve truths about Jesus. In sermons like now, or Bible studies, or over coffee, without knowing what those truths taste like. I can believe, in other words, with my mind, and preach even with my words, the truth that we just read aloud. The Lord is near. And yet I can live my life in such a way that practically He is far away. And so when things are bad in my life, I tend to live as if God is far away. Even as I confess that the Lord is near, I tend to live as if God is far away. I usually get anxious when things are going bad. I usually get touchy when things are getting bad. I usually start to withdraw into myself. I start to rely on my own resources to solve my own issues. And that sends me down a spiral. And so yes, I confess the Lord is near, but the way that I'm living my life evidences that the Lord is very far away in my experience. Or when things are very good for me and things are going well and everything is vibing well in my life, I tend to live as if God is far away too. I can go all day without talking to Him. I can go for a long time without relying upon Him. And in both cases, I believe that God is near, but I actually live as if He is far. My life tells a different story than my confession. I think most of us here believe or at least want to believe that God is near. But I also think most of us could probably relate to what I just shared. We believe He is near, but we live as if He is far away. And I think the reasons for this are both internal and external. And so with the internally uh, dynamic, God is far in our life because we have broken hearts. A key feature of our broken heart, our heart that has been broken by sin, is our innate tendency to push God away. Uh, we get pretty good at banishing the Lord away from our life, or banishing Him away from 
certain parts of our lives, don't we? And that's a key feature of what it means that our hearts have been broken by the fall. And so there's an internal reason why we live as if God is far, even as we confess that He is near. I think there's also some external reasons for this as well. The air we breathe says that God is far away, doesn't it? The, the cultural moment in which we live in just says in everything, both verbally and non-verbally, just the way that we live our lives right now, God is far we live in what philosophers call a secular age. So once upon a time, God was involved in everything, and everybody took that as for granted. God was involved in everything. So today, we say, bless you, when someone sneezes. That is a carryover from this old way of thinking. Like, like somehow, demons and angels are involved in our sneezing. <laughs> Because of course they are. Well, part of what makes our age secular is the fact that we are all laughing right now. It seems ridiculous that God is involved in a sneeze. It seems ridiculous, let alone that God is involved in our life, or in our job, or in our dating life, or in our thoughts, or in the weather. Like, it seems ridiculous to think that God is involved in anything like that. And that ridiculous feeling that we all have means that we are living in a secular age. It's just the air we're breathing. Picture it this way. If you've seen the Truman Show, all of life in this movie, it turns out, is lived within a solid dome that is painted like a sky. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, that's life in a secular world. That, that's life in a secular world. We may believe God is near, but we live as if life is just under a solid dome painted like the sky. He is beyond the ceiling, if He exists at all. And that's how we live our life. So, with the Lord so far away. And so, for both of these reasons, both internally and externally, we, what this does is it kind of creates a gap between our confession and our action. We confess in our mind and with our head, God is near. But we practically, in our hearts and with our hands, live as if He is far away. And I think this gap is larger than any of us are willing to admit in our own life. And in fact, I think we actually don't see this gap, but we see the symptoms of this gap. I'll point out three this morning. This gap, I think, is revealed by chronic joylessness. So in verse 4 of our passage that we read this morning, Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. And he anchors that in the truth that the Lord is near. But when there is a gap between our confession that the Lord is near and our active experience of His nearness, when there's a gap there, we lose out on this joy, this joy in the Lord. So as Christian neurologist Jim Wilder points out, Joy in the Lord, joy of the Lord is kind of a meta-emotion that can be attached to all of our other emotions. How so? Well, the Lord is constant. The Lord is constant. His presence is fixed. And so it's possible to be happy and joyful in the Lord. It's possible to be sad and joyful in the Lord. It's possible to be angry and joyful in the Lord. It's possible to be disgusted and joyful in the Lord because the Lord is fixed. He is always present. So part of what it means, according to Wilder, to grow in the likeness of Jesus is to cultivate well-worn paths 
He says, between these big emotions to joy in the Lord, who is always near. I think this gap, though, is also revealed by combativeness. So then in verse 5 of our passage, Paul expects gentleness to flow out because of our nearness to the Lord. But when we live life as if God is far, like again, we can confess that the Lord is near, but when we live life as if God is far, we often turn bitter, we turn argumentative and harsh. So in another letter, Paul writes to Titus, he says, quote, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, they must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle. Same word as we were reading this morning. And so Paul contrasts this gentleness with a quarrelsome spirit. A combativeness. And I kind of think this makes sense to me. If the Lord is far, then it's up for us, it's up to us to rule the world, right? And to rule our little pretend kingdom that we have a pretend throne on and we live in. And so we are very combative when people get on our nerves, when we can't handle it when things don't go our way. That's life outside of the nearness of the Lord. I think this gap is also revealed in an over-anxiousness. In verse 6, Paul invites us to experience substantial freedom from anxiety because of the nearness of God. But when we live as if God is far, we often don't experience this freedom. Now, I want to say this. It's good to have cares in this world. And I also want to say this. There are anxiety disorders that are complex. There's also, though, a moment when we start caring too much about everyday things. There's care, and then there is overcare. This is when our cares are too much and in the wrong order. This is when a good thing, care, becomes an enslaving thing. Overcare. Mm -hmm. When we feel enslaved to our cares, we feel stuck protecting our cares. We flare when our cares get threatened. In these moments, I think we're trying to be God. Why? Because inexperienced and practically, God is far. God who cares better and cares more about the things we care about. And so it makes sense that if we live life as if he is far, then our cares will get all out of order, won't it? I would just say this. For all of these things, Paul has four words, doesn't he? The Lord is in here. Scholars of the Bible ask, is the Lord near in time or is the Lord near in space? When Paul writes this letter. Is the Lord near in time? Or is the Lord near in space? And maybe you were asking the same thing. Well, this question has the same answer as peanut butter or jelly? You know? Pickleball or tennis? 
That might be an either or for you. Liverpool or Columbus? True. You know? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. There is a time that the Lord is near in time. And the Lord is near in space. And I believe that when Paul is saying the Lord is near, he is invoking both. The Lord is near in time. Though we don't know the timing, we do know that his future appearing is promised in the scriptures. And so as surely as Jesus arrived at Christmas, so also he will appear again. There's a lot of mystery around that, but we know, as many people point out, that that is the next major event in the story, the true story of the world. It just is. But in the meantime, the Lord is very near to us in space by the Holy Spirit. So remember, just basic theology 101, the God we worship is triune. And this too is a mystery. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God the Son is near us by the Holy Spirit. So that even in His Gospel, He tells His disciples, I am leaving you, but it's better that I leave because in my place, an advocate, the Holy Spirit will come. And so taking Jesus at His word, it means that we have something better than His original disciples do. The Holy Spirit. Which means we have a better intimacy with Jesus in a way than the original disciples because of the Holy Spirit. He is near in time, yes, but He is near in space. Sometimes my wife will be driving home from a long trip away, and I know it's a long trip, and so I'm expecting her arrival, and so that means I'm doing dishes, and I'm cleaning the bathroom, and I'm doing all those things. And while I'm waiting... And even as I'm eager to see her, I have the option of calling her. And she has the option of calling me. And so because of cell phone technology, my wife can be near in space and in time, even as I wait for her. That's like a really poor metaphor for Advent. But it's, it's, it's like scratching on the surface, isn't it? It's scratching at the surface. It helps. Because Jesus is not only driving towards us, or we are driving towards Him, but He is actually calling you, and He's always available to be called on and as we wait. He is more present than you realize. He's present now, as I preach and as we go. He's present now, even as we wait for Him. And it's this two-dimensional nearness that we are experiencing at this very moment, this Two-dimensional nearness, space and time. That nearness can give you access to three impossible gifts. You have access to fixed joy. When you actually rest and experience the nearness of the Lord, you can rejoice no matter what, says Paul. It's fixed. Because the joy... Is in the Lord. And so our joy is as fixed and as immovable as the Lord is. Paul says, always. Paul, what about my work stress? Paul would say, always. What about my health struggles? Always. What about my breakup? Always. Philippian scholar Moises Silva argues that this is why Paul says, I will say it again, rejoice. 
he is anticipating the Philippians' objections. Paul, what about the persecution we're experiencing as a church? I, I will say it again. Rejoice. It's a fixed joy. Without that in the Lord, this command would crush us, wouldn't it? But instead, it's an invitation to experience true joy in the Lord no matter what. You have access to a fixed joy because the Lord himself is fixed nearer than you realize. You also have access to an indiscriminate gentleness, verse 5. I say indiscriminate because you can, with the nearness of the Lord in your life, extend gentleness to everyone. Everyone. To all, says Paul. Not just easy to love people, but hard to like people. You can be gentle. Take a look at that word, gentleness, in verse 5. This word is the opposite, as we saw, of someone who is contentious, of someone who is quarrelous. This word is the opposite of someone who, in other words, is only dealing with the letter of the law. A gentle person, in contrast, is able to see the bigger picture, to not, under, not only understand what somebody deserves, but what somebody needs. A gentle parent sees that their child is struggling at bedtime, in part because you kept them up past bedtime and fed them ice cream. Like, that's a gentle parent. Sees the bigger picture. A gentle boss knows how their influence impacts others for good and for bad. And so asks, how am I experienced as bad? And then listens well and is eager to change and to ask forgiveness. That is a gentle leader. A gentle leader is not obsessed with their due or climbing higher and higher and higher, but is eager to use their influence to influence, I'm sorry, no, to, to actually help others flourish. And so is it any surprise that Jesus himself, Jesus is described with this word? Paul says, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Friends, we have access to indiscriminate gentleness. We can be gentle with everyone, so long as our gentle Lord is near. And he is. And when he comes, he will make all things right. The Lord is near is a fierce thing. Because he will make all things right. And he will judge perfectly. And because of that, his followers can reject our pretend kingdom. We can reject our pretend rule with our pretend subjects. And we can relax into the good rule of Jesus. And so then people can experience us as gentle. And then finally, when you actually rest and experience in his closeness, you can have access to an unshakable peace. If you look at verse 6 and 7 with me, this peace here is not just available under certain conditions. And Paul is very, very, very adamant that we get the point. It's a anything and everything peace. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Why? 
Well, two reasons. Number one, this unshakable peace is through prayer. That's why I say anything, everything, peace. Prayer is not complicated. I read this and I'm thinking to myself, prayer is not as complicated as I make it out to be. It's simply acting on the truth that the Lord is near. That's what prayer is. Prayer is simply acting on the truth that the Lord is near. We can release our cares into the hands of one who cares better and cares more than we do and who is near. And who will make all things right. And as others have put it, it's trusting the Lord that with all of the same facts that He has, we would answer our prayers in the exact same way that He does. That is the nearness of the Lord in action. Trusting His reign. Trusting His rule. The second reason is this. Our unshakable peace is of the Lord. See verse 7? It's the peace of God. It's not just some peace. It's the peace of God. When we experience this, we experience a peace that is not the net result of mental gymnastics. Think about that. That would be the peace of our intellect, not the peace of the Lord. What we have is access to the peace of God. This is the Lord's nearness in action. He is so near, according to this passage, the end of verse 7. Is so near that the Lord will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ. He will militantly and jealously guard your heart the way that I would guard my children's bedroom if being attacked. This unshakable peace, the peace of God. Is far better than what I would call counterfeit peace. When I'm anxious, uh, personally, I go all in my head. I go way up here, and I try to think my way out of my anxiety. And here's the thing, it kind of works. It kind of works. That's the hook. That's the drug, actually. About thinking your problems. It kind of works, but it gives you kind of a dopamine hit when you receive this kind of mental rest about what you're worried about. And all the gymnastics you've done in your brain to sort of make it okay in your thinking, it kind of works. And so you go to it again, and go to it again, and go to it again, and again and again, and it, it doesn't last. The okayness doesn't last, so you do it again. And more importantly, it excludes the Lord. It's not the peace of God that I'm experiencing now. But friends, we have access to an unshakable peace, the peace of God. We have access to indiscriminate gentleness. We have access to a fixed joy. Why? The Lord is near. I had a teacher of New Testament who told his class, and I was among this class, he said, we are God's eschatological people. Now that is a mouthful. That is a like $20 word, eschatological. Eschatological. Isn't that great? That word, though, just means things relating to the end of the story that God's writing. That's what that word means. And so to be eschatological is to live in light of His nearness. Yes, we are God's eschatological people. We are meant to live in light of His sure appearing. 
when he makes all things new. When he breaks all that has been broken. And this is our calling card. When the world is just walking one step in front of the other, we actually know where our baby steps are taking us. We are walking to meet the Lord who will judge all things perfectly, who will bring salvation to all who are entrusting in Him and not our own efforts, and who will make all that He made and called good that has been broken new. That's what we're walking towards. And so hope, may the Lord narrow the gap between believing in your mind that the Lord is near and experiencing and actively resting in the nearness of God. May the Lord narrow that gap, and as He narrows that gap, hope. May your gentleness increase. May your peace increase. Friends, may your joy increase. And Lord, we ask for that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.